What does woe mean in the Bible? And how does it apply to us? Let's look at God's Word. It's Revelation 8, verse 7, verse 13, and then chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, and verse 12. Eight verse seven deals with the beginning of the trumpet blasts of the seven angels. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. The reason I want to start with this is because this mirrors or is consistent with the plagues of Egypt, and the plagues started out severe enough but they continued to get worse as time went on until finally you had the destroyer who was unleashed and the angel who was declaring what would happen was Moses. There was no trumpet blast per se, but he was proclaiming the judgment of God upon Pharaoh. Pharaoh represented secular man, represented those who are in rebellion against God. And so every time... Moses came before Pharaoh, he would make it a, a pronouncement. And in that pronouncement, judge would, would, judgment would come. And the judgments got increasingly worse until finally the destroyer was unleashed. And only those who had blood on their doorposts from a, from a sacrificed lamb, only those would be passed over. In other words, they would not undergo the judgment that was coming. For all the rest... All those in Egypt who did not have blood covering their doorposts, that atonement, their firstborns were taken. And the significance of that is in those days, the firstborn was the inheritor of the largest amount of the inheritance. The firstborn was responsible for seeing to it that the family was successful, that it continued on after the father and mother have passed away. Taking the life of the firstborn means that God is saying, I'm I'm bringing an end to your family. This is now judgment that falls upon you. When we look at the trumpet blasts, from first to last, that's what we see. Verse 13 of Revelation chapter 8. As I watched, I heard the eagle that was flying in in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. And then chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, we see the woes that are pronounced. They were told not to harm these, these demons. Even the destroyer was told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. It's like a lifespan of a locust. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion. It strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. And then finally in verse 12. 
The first woe is past. The two other woes are yet to come. So we see the pronouncement of woes. What does woe then mean according to the scriptures? Well, there are two different words in the English language for woe. One is spelled W-H-O-A, and that's what someone would usually call out to their horse if he's going too fast. I can remember riding a Tennessee walker in Kentucky, and that, that horse had not been ridden maybe a couple months out of the year, and he was wild. And the guys who owned him asked me, I said, do you know how to ride a horse? Oh, sure. I just rode a mule just a few days ago, so I'm good. <laughs> that horse took off, took off when I kicked him, and he would not stop. What was I doing? I was pulling back on the reins as hard as I could and shouting at the top of my voice, Whoa! Whoa! The horse was deaf, so I pulled back on the reins harder until he finally came to a stop. And that's basically what that word means. It's to bring, either slow things down or bring things to a a ceasing point. Or to maybe reconsider what you're doing and do something different. There's another woe, and, and obviously this woe, to cease or stop is not explicitly in script in the Bible. But then you have the other spelling of woe, which is spelled W-O-E, which we're talking about here in Revelation. This woe spelling refers to the grief one feels in suffering loss or the anguish of the soul being afflicted by some terrible calamity or even the burden of being lost and not knowing how to find a way out of your dreadful situation. That can be a sense of woe. However, when woe is proclaimed by the lips of Jesus Christ, whether it's here in this world or from his throne in heaven, it is always the declaration of God's divine judgment. The declaration of God's divine judgment. To declare is to pronounce what what you are going to do. For example, most of you are familiar with the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence pronounces that uh, the colonies of these United States are going to sever their ties with, with Britain, no longer wanting Britain's government to control them, and they are going to form their own union with their own constitutional laws to, to govern themselves. And so the Declaration of Independence was a, a declaration of judgment against England, saying we don't want you anymore as those who govern us. We will govern now ourselves. When God pronounces a woe against evil people, he is setting divine judgment in motion. When God pronounces a woe against evil people, he is setting divine judgment in motion. This is what the Apostle Paul addresses in Romans 1 verse 18, when he says the wrath of God is being, it's being revealed In other words, it's being set in motion from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. As God's wrath is being poured out, it gets worse over time until the people doing such things can no longer discern good from evil. 
in that they would determine that which ought to be good as evil and that which ought to be evil as good. It'll be like in the days of Noah, wherein every thought in their heart is inclined to consistently do what is evil. Now, it's important to understand that when Jesus pronounces a woe, or several woes for that matter, as you can see this uh, in in chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel, where he's pronouncing woes upon the Pharisees and and the religious leaders of Israel, that Jesus would rather have these men repent than perish underneath the judgment of God. That is his desire. God loves his creation. He wants his creation restored unto him. But we remember, uh, because of that, the reason Jesus came into this world. It's John 3.16. You all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not what? Perish. Fall under God's judgment. But receive eternal life. Uh, When Jesus' last words on the cross were forgive them for they know not what they do, speaking to the very people who, who crucified him, asking the Father to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, we see the compassion and mercy of our Savior Jesus Christ, not wanting people to fall under the judgment of God. Yet even though Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost, he knows in his declaration of woes that if these teachers of Israel or any who hear his teaching and and do not repent and turn to him in faith, they will be doomed to an eternity in hell resulting from God's judgment on sin. Now I said before that the word woe, W-H-O-A, is not explicitly in Scripture, but it is inferred. I see it being inferred in the word repent. Repent. The command to repent tells you to stop going down the path that you believe is the right path as you're directed by your sinful heart. You stop. You cease doing that. And you turn around and wherever Jesus is, you go to Him and follow Him. The rich young ruler who came before the Lord Jesus Christ and asked Him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do so that I don't fall under the wrath and judgment of a holy God and that I can dwell in his presence with him forever? What must take place? And Jesus says, what? You obeyed the commandments. And he goes through the latter table of the law, do not kill, steal, murder, etc. All these I've kept since my youth. One thing you lack, sell all that you own. Give to the poor and what? Follow me. That's significance because he believes that the reason he is so blessed and so wealthy is because he's doing what's right in God's sight. And Jesus is telling him, no, you're not doing what's right in God's sight. If you want to do what's right in God's sight, sell everything that God has given you and use it for his kingdom glory. Use, it to minister, use the proceeds to minister to the poor. Reach out to those who are weak and hurting because that's where I'm going. I'm going to minister to the poor. Will you follow me? This is the right path. Will you follow me down the right path? And he would not. He went his own way. He went his own way. 
To repent is to not go your own way, but to turn to Christ Jesus in faith and follow him. In another sense, woe, W-H-O-A, is inferred where God says in Psalm 46, verse 10, to cease striving and know that I am God. Stop striving to be your own God and know that I alone am God and there is no other. That is the proclamation there. For the new believer, that woe, W-H-O-A, moment of ceasing to think of yourself as your own God, the one who is captain of your own destiny, is when the Holy Spirit calls out to you through the proclamation of the gospel, effectually convincing you of your sinful rebellion against the true and living God, and hence enabling you to see and understand your miserable estate of condemnation before God because of your sin. That's what Jesus was trying to show this rich young ruler. You think what you're doing is righteous, Because it's religious. And I'm telling you it's not right. Because it is not in line with me. You are not willing to follow me. And I do whatever the Father tells me to do. When you understand that you are not on the right path. That you are on the path, uh, the road leading to destruction, to ruin instead of the path of life. Your eyes are opened. And you realize your miserable estate, but the Holy Spirit is not done with you yet. In His wondrous loving mercy, He has made a way for you to escape this terrible judgment by providing salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit enlightens your mind in the knowledge of Jesus Christ who takes away your sin by taking those sins and nailing them to the cross. It is the death of death in the death of Christ. He removes your sins. It's a once and for all sacrifice that has continuing effect even into the future for all of God's elect who would be gathered in to his kingdom through Jesus' blood, through God's grace. So this is the work of Christ Jesus as the once for all sacrifice. The Holy Spirit then renews, makes new your will towards a different purpose. Then before, as you now receive Jesus Christ by faith as your Savior and God and follow him as the source of your righteousness, as the one who reconciled you to God, as the one who is your master. As you receive Jesus Christ into your heart, you receive his inheritance as well, which is life everlasting. That is that woe moment of seeing that salvation is through no one else but Jesus Christ. And salvation is not only that you turn to him in faith, but you follow him in faith and you live by faith, seeking to do his will. For the believer in Christ Jesus, there are woe moments, plural, because that is the work of sanctification in our hearts. We still struggle with that God complex. We still struggle because of sin in our lives, in our hearts. We struggle with that idea that we are in control, that we are masters of our own destiny. And that is not true. If you look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25, the Apostle Paul understands this. He understands it at work in his own body. And in Romans 7, beginning with verse 21, he says, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. 
For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. Those things that are fixed in my mind that Jesus has told me, this is what's right. It's in my mind that this war is waged. Something is attacking. Something is confronting. Something is trying to assert power in my mind and tell me that the, the, the righteous teachings of Jesus Christ are not right. And that I should obey the hunger and desires of my own sinful heart. He says, they're waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Apostle Paul recognizes the spiritual battle within. He asks, who will rescue, deliver me from this body of death? These bodies that we have are not in their glorified estate as of yet. We are still vulnerable. We are still weak. We are still subject to temptation, thus can be influenced by the power of evil. Thus, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, this same apostle, Apostle Paul, writes these words. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Apostle Paul is not speaking to the world here. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to you and I. He is writing to, to you who are sealed by the power of Christ Jesus. And he's saying, be strong in the divine power of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That divine power that raised him from death to life, that triumphed over evil. You are not to rest in your own power. You are not to contend with the devil by your own strength. If you do, you will lose. Even as a believer, you will suffer loss. If you contend with the devil thinking you don't need to seek God's power through prayer, you don't need to seek his counsel through his holy word, you don't need to seek be part of the fellowship of the body where you can be sharpened by your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't need any of these. You don't need to obey his commands. If you, if you go down this road thinking you can just simply contend with the devil, your striving will be losing. You will not overcome. You will not win. And that's the elephant question in the room, isn't it? Why is the church so weak today? It's like we're going after a lion with pop guns. You know, those little guns with corks in the end. Instead of contending with him in the power and majesty of God the Father. Coming to him fully armed and armored so that we can take a stand against his evil ways. Do we seek God's power through his means of grace, his word, the sacraments that we're going to be partaking of in prayer? Are we obeying his will revealed to us through these means of grace? In Revelation 8, verse 7, following where the first angel sounds his trumpet, carrying through to the other six angels sounding their trumpets, we see the perspective of evil from God's throne. In Revelation 8, 7, 
8, chapter 8, verse 7, the first four angels announce the judgments coming from the heavens. But in verse 13, when the eagle shouts out the woes, there is a switch, there is a change. This is not coming simply from God's angels. These are coming through evil demons and the destroyer who is Satan himself. So consider how Satan how Satan and his demonic horde are described in Revelation 9 verses 1 through 6 and 11. Consider who you're facing when we talk about spiritual warfare. Satan is described as a destroyer and his demonic horde compared to locusts who desolate the land since this is a spiritual assault by these demons. We're not talking about a physical corruption or, or destruction of the world, but spiritual desolation. Dr. Richard Phillips describes these demons this way. John compares the locusts to war horses who wear crowns of gold and possess human faces. This is verse 7. The crowns foretell victory and the human faces show that they are guided by irrational cunning. John adds that their hair is like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. The pleasing looking female hair suggests seductive powers that in reality bring death. Uh, We think of pornea and all these other things. Moreover, the locusts had breastplates like righteousness or breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. The breastplates speak of invulnerability and the sound of wings depicts the speed of their assault. Finally, they have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Uh, H.B. Sweet comments, the scorpion takes its place with the snake and other creatures hostile to man and with them symbolizes the forces of spiritual evil which are active in the world. These are analogies presenting a frightful and horrible and true picture of the operation of of the powers of darkness in the souls of the wicked. This is what's going on even today. Consider how this demonic horde strategizes. Paul talks about us not being unaware of the schemes of the devil. A scheme is a stratagem. How you're going to attack in order to gain the victory. Well, let's look at how these demons are working in our world today and how they have worked. Remember that they are working in the hearts and minds of those who are under their control, not in the Christian faithful, but those who are not sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I went to J. Vernon McGee for this insight. He says, A line of demarcation runs through the organized church, uh, irrespective of denomination. The bifurcation in the church began years ago in Germany, in the last quarter of the 19th century. Its origin, was with, its origin was with what is known as higher criticism. First, the Graf-Wellhausen hypothesis made its attack upon the integrity of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, uh, saying that Moses didn't write it, that uh, they were challenging Mosaic authorship. Then there was the Bauer-Tubingen, hypothesis that made its attack upon the New Testament. These started the assault upon the integrity of the Word of God. 
Also during that century, Darwin wrote his Origin of the Species, and the theory of evolution was introduced into the church and accepted by many. Also, it was at this time that Karl Marx wrote his Das Kapital, talking about communism, socialism. At the turn of the 20th century, these philosophies were splitting the church. The protagonists espousing these viewpoints boastfully took the name of modernism. They were progressive, modern, and intellectual, according to their own estimation. Those who did not adopt their viewpoint were called intellectual obscurantists, those who would obscure the truth and uh, make it uh, discolored. Today, modernism has pretty much gone out of style, and the tag it bears now is liberalism. That covers a multitude of sins, he says. It covers a wide range of those who hold various viewpoints in the church today. Now, that all happened before my time but its effects are realized in our nation today and throughout the world. And it makes me say, whoa, I need to step back and take a good hard look at this. What am I facing as a Christian? What am I dealing with here as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ? Do we need to go forth in the mighty power of God? We speak of the Apostle John using Old Testament imagery and language for his visions and revelation. The Apostle Paul also used the Old Testament as his reference for his letters and some of the images and analogies that he came up with. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. When Paul talks about standing firm in the might of God, this is his reference that he's drawing from in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40, verse 26, where the prophet Isaiah is mocking the feeble attempts of man striving to glorify himself through idolatry, through the intellectual and material creations he has made. Isaiah compares these feeble idols to the living God. And in verse 26, he says, Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Get your focus out of this world and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. They are all in their orbit. They are all in their proper position. They are all doing what they are supposed to to be doing because of the power of God. And then Paul says, to be clear, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. He's talking about this power. The power that puts everything in its place and can hold it there. The power that upholds the continuous existence of the stars and the heavens. Wow, Pastor, do I I really need that kind of power to be able to stand against the devil and his demonic horde? Although the world would try and convince you otherwise, I say, yes, yes, 
This is the power you need to take your stand against the evil one. I know we've read the book of Job. But it is Satan who asks permission from God to bring affliction against Job. And Job is powerless to stop it. He is powerless to stop it. Look in your Bibles at Job 10 verse 15. Job recognizes that he's overwhelmed by what is taking place. And he says in in Job 10 verse 15, If I am guilty, woe to me. You hear the word, right? Woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head, for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. Job pronounces a woe upon himself as he believes he is undergoing unjustified suffering through terrible loss, overwhelming affliction from an enemy he can't even see, an alarming sense of being lost, meaning Job does not know how to find a way out of his dreadful situation. He is locked in. He is stuck. And he wants God to somehow resolve it. He wants God to explain why he is allowing him to go through such suffering. At the heart of the question, will Job challenge the integrity of the word of God? Will Job challenge the righteousness of God in allowing Satan to do this to him? In Job 41, God describes Satan by comparing him uh, to one of the most terrifying creatures that God has ever made on this earth. I don't think no commentator, I don't think any commentator really knows what this creature is. But consider what God says to Job in chapter 41, verses 9 through 11. He says, Behold, the hope of man is false. This is the ESV. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him, speaking of the Leviathan. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God is presenting a creature a Leviathan that is far more powerful than man. And letting Job know that the hope of overcoming this creature in his own strength, this creature symbolizing Satan and thus evil, is a false hope. You will not defeat him in your own strength. Yet this creature is under God's sovereign control. He is under God's dominion. And God is the one then who is ultimately to be feared. Not anything in creation, but our Creator. Hence, instead of God fearing Job's judgment of him, it is Job, it is us who need to fear God's judgment of us. When God does respond to Job, what does Job do? He says, whoa. W-H-O-A, whoa. I need to reconsider what I've said. I need to reconsider what I've done. I need to repent. And so I turn from what I had believed was right, 
unto you, O God, and I will surrender myself, submit myself in dust and ashes before you, recognizing that you, O Lord, you alone are righteous. When we hear of woe in Scripture, and God restores him, of course, when we hear of the woes of Scripture, it is to those who do not have the Holy Spirit's power, God's power to withstand demonic forces of evil in heavenly places. The evidence of these demonic influences are quite clear in our society today. As you think of sexual promiscuity and how that evil destroys marriages, and families through adultery as well as robbing young men and women of the purity of their relationship created by God. There is the evil of discrimination which sows needless hatred and bitterness. You have people turning to drugs and alcohol for comfort while their lives are being destroyed in the process. You see this demonic work in growing lawlessness in our land. And let's not forget the millions who are being held captive by false religions. Oh, Satan's busy. And so are his demonic horn. But we as Christians need to understand where our strength comes from. We need to say no to sin or woe to sin and yes to God to search us and show us what our sin is and please destroy it. When you find it, Lord, and you expose it, by your power will you please destroy it. When we are tempted by evil, we are not to entertain it, but to call upon God to move it away, to cast it away, so that we are not entertaining it, but our focus is upon the Lord. When the influence of evil, influences of evil impinge upon us through those who do the devil's bidding, we need to remember who our God is. That He is the Almighty One. Greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. But we need to trust in Him. It's not just about giving Him a word salad and expecting Him to respond. It is about laying our hearts bare before Him and entrusting ourselves to Him, trusting in His power, trusting in His Word, which means that we obey it. We don't say that's nice and then do our own thing. We obey His counsel and carry it out in our daily lives. When God arms us with His armor and with His weapons of warfare, spiritual warfare, They are not simply to be placed on the table for later use. They are to be used now, in the here and now. Do we not see how evil is corrupting our society? Do we not see how evil is corrupting our churches? We need to be faithful as His people and use all that He gives us to do His kingdom work for His glory here in this life. Unless you think that we do not have the power to overcome the evil one, that power is represented by the Lord's Supper right in front of you now. 
It is through Jesus' blood that we were made righteous in the sight of God. The devil has no hold on you if you are sealed by the blood of Christ Jesus. If his blood atones for your sin because you have entrusted yourself to him by faith, the devil has no hold on you and you can contend with him always. The word of God represented by the bread, his body, that feeds us and strengthens us and nourishes us, gives us the strength and will to contend, to continue to go forth in righteousness, seeking to serve the Lord. The power to contend with evil is right there in your presence, in the body and blood of Jesus Christ that you partake of, that seals you, And gives you strength so that the devil cannot corrupt you. But that you can overcome him through that same power. I would ask that the elders come forward at this.